Welcome to Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams, and this is the show where we talk about truth and grace boldly. I'm so glad you're here. Hey guys, it's Haley. Well, I did not expect to be talking to you because it is only June 9th and I'm supposed to be taking a break right now. But as we know, the tragic and terrible death of George Floyd on May 25th has sparked a nationwide discussion and tons of civil unrest around the issues of racism and social justice and racial unity. And especially within even, you know, the Christian subculture that I know many of you would consider yourselves a part of and are seeing in your feeds There's a lot of disagreement right now about what the solution is and what we do from here. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to share a voice with you that I have come to really admire in this space and really trust to have a faithful biblical perspective on these issues of race and social justice. So That's why I'm coming out of my break to give you this episode. I recorded this conversation yesterday, June 8th, so it's brand new, it's fresh, it's relevant, and I think it's going to offer a really needed and desperately needed biblical perspective on everything that is happening in the U.S. and around the world on this topic and conversation around social justice and racial unity. So with that, let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Monique Dusan. All right. So today on Kindled, I'm chatting with Chantal Monique Dusan. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay, perfect. And (laughs) she is the founder of the Center for Biblical Unity and a Racial Unity Advocate. So Monique, you go by Monique, you told me. Thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is fun. So I would love for you to just introduce yourself first before we get into our topic for today and tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, my name is Chantal Monique. I founded the Center for Biblical Unity. Let's see. I was born and raised at least the first 15 years in South Los Angeles, which is an inner city. And I was raised around what we would now call critical race theory or critical theory, just some of the beliefs that are being held in in today's current culture. And I'll explain a little bit more about what that looks like in just a second. But raised there, moved out to the Valley of Los Angeles when I was about 15, went to a small Christian college, Biola University, and have been in social service for the last 20 years. Uh, Let's see, in 2014, I moved to Cape Town, South Africa as a missionary and worked with children experiencing trauma there and then moved home in 2018 and have been working as a program manager at a multi-site food pantry since then. Mm -hmm. When I came home from South Africa, I noticed that America had drastically shifted in its conversation around race Mm -hmm. and really saw how hostile America had become and extremely polarized. And so even though I had come home like on short stints during my time away living abroad, I wasn't really entrenched within the divisiveness that I was now experiencing within the States as living home. Mm-hmm. And so as I got in the conversation with the Lord and was really praying and asking what's going on here and had conversations with friends, 
I just really felt like I could use my voice to help bring more unity and clarity into what's happening and really felt like the Lord was leading me to start the Center for Biblical Unity. And so there I am. I did. (laughs) And it's been a wild ride, especially the last couple of weeks, but it's been good and hoping to, to really bring some unity and healing and a different way of thinking about things. Yeah, that's incredible. So how long have you actually had the Center for Biblical Unity? We're really new. We were officially founded in February of this year. Oh my gosh. Wow. Like that is seriously, that gives me chills because the timing of God providing your voice, I mean, and just being able to share truth, like you said, and offer a different perspective and a different approach to the unity that we all, I mean, so many of us, I would venture to say most of us are just longing to have. And yet, you know, feeling is just virtually impossible with the way that secularism, progressivism, and the world is offering us. Yes, it it cannot be attained that way. It will only be able to build more divisiveness or division. You know, it, it doesn't have a framework for unity, for true unity. Right. So you said you kind of were raised around critical theory. Did you know that that's what you were kind of the air you were breathing in? Did you know it by name or did you later come to find out, oh, that's what that was called? I came to find out later on. So Mm -hmm. being in elementary school, I had primarily Black teachers who just say things so flippantly, either when talking with students, like during Black History Month or with other teachers, you know, and it's just like, well, that's how white people are. Or you're in this situation or the hood is always going to be this way because of white people. But it wasn't just teachers. It was like my mom or my friend's parents. It was just, it wasn't, there was nothing even wrong with the conversation. It was just what the conversation was and the way that people thought. And so those Mm -hmm. comments, I was just raised around them. And yeah, so I never really thought anything of it. Like we didn't say it like in mixed racial company or anything like that. It was just, you know, what we knew and, and because we knew it, then we talk about it if it came up. Right. It was kind of the worldview that you saw everything through. It was. And, you know, a good example of this is when Rodney King was beaten and they had the riots in 92, you know, and there was just this thought of, you know, black people are just so angry because white people are always keeping us down. And, you know, I was a child. I didn't really understand how white people would be keeping us down. I just knew that they were keeping us down. Right. You know, there was no explanation as to this is how they're keeping you down. Just this is how, you know, this is just what it is. They're keeping you down. And so Mm. I actually stood, you know, I could stand on my street and watch the riots happen. And so when I went away to school, when I went to Biola, I studied sociology and that's where I was given the name. And I realized then that, oh my gosh, like this is a thing. It is real because, you know, my Christian teachers, my Christian professors are now giving a name to what we've been talking about my whole life. Right. You know, this is- That had to be like, just sort of like a mind blown moment. Like what? Oh, this isn't just the reality of the world, but it's the lens through which I have been educated. And now I'm seeing that it might not be the only way to see things. Well, to me, it was the only way to see things. It was confirming the bias that I already had. Oh, okay. Okay. So it kind of did it entrench you further into that? It did because, because technically what I was experiencing, you know, back at home or in the community was critical race theory, just without 
the title. And then when mm-hmm. I got into university, they were able to put a name to it, to put statistics mm-hmm. to it, to give okay. more meat and bones to what I was already holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, okay. it does. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I think, you know, university just really solidified things for me. And then as I went out into the working world, I was able to really hold on to what I had learned and then advocate for that and speak into that through jobs or personal life and things like that. Mm -hmm. So then what changed for you? Like where did the shift occur where you, you know, realized that critical race theory didn't offer the framework for unity that you, you know, wanted or believed would be possible? So when I moved home in 2018, I just started having conversations with my friend Krista and I lead a podcast and she's the one, she's my, my co-podcaster person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she just really started putting different pebbles in my shoe and getting me to think about why I thought about the the world, the way that I did. And, Mm -hmm. you know, asking me, is this biblical? Where do you find this in scripture? How do you reconcile this verse with this one? What about things like slandering your neighbor or judging your neighbor? She just asked so many questions. And as she began to ask questions, I began to reconsider Mm -hmm. because I didn't have answers the way that I thought I, I could from a biblical standpoint. Right. Began to kind of unravel. And so because I held the view that the way she saw things was more of white theology. Mm -hmm. She and I both had conversations with some Coptic, a Coptic priest, and Mm -hmm. they are more ancient. They are an ancient faith, actually. They go back to the, like the first 300 years of the church. And, and I asked questions about how the early church handled issues of partiality and things like that. And the answers were very different than anything I would have considered. I asked questions about, you know, isn't, you know, this Christianity a white man's religion and found answers that, you know, no, it really isn't. Mm. And began to really deconstruct my thoughts on critical race theory and some of my views on how I was holding Christianity even. And so it was, it was definitely a, a time of paradigm shifting and in conversations with the Lord and like tons of prayer. I just really began to have my framework rebuilt from a more historically Christian perspective and was able to, I think, remove a piece of me anyway, remove or get some separation and some distance. I'll say that from the critical mm-hmm. theory lens mm-hmm. and investigate it according to the, his, or compare it according to the historic Christian narrative. Yeah. And it doesn't match up. Right. That's so interesting. What I really found kind of impactful about what you just said is that what kind of started, like you described, putting a pebble in your shoe was not an ideology making itself known just, you know, as an overarching idea. And you weren't compelled by a system of thinking or a new worldview or a new religion. You were actually just loved by a friend. You know, I mean, you were, you were cared for in a way that Krista had to 
put herself out on a limb a little bit to maybe risk offending you or maybe risk you being like, well, I disagree or, you know, I don't feel like you're loving me by, t- by saying this to me. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a scary spot to be as either individual really getting into some of those deep topics that a lot of friendships can't make it through. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of friendships never go that deep. Um, and when they start to, and people realize there's some differences, they're like, okay, yeah, we don't see eye to eye, like, never mind. You know, so I think that's really amazing that you guys were able to kind of hold on to your friendship and then deepen it by just really pursuing truth together. And I just think it's interesting because a lot of us probably have the wrong idea about how things get changed in the world and culture. It's not really by disseminating a ton of information out there, like even through a podcast or a Facebook page, although that's good. I mean, these things, these conversations, these changed minds and hearts, like it comes down to a person to person interaction. And, and ultimately, like you said, prayer in Jesus, like that's, yeah. that's where the true transformation happens. And so like, even what you and I are doing, it's great. It's necessary. It's good. I mean, to speak the truth boldly, to share your story, to kind of provide a testimony to what God has done in your own heart and life. But for anyone listening, I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, it still has to come down to you probably having a hard conversation with a friend, if that's yes. where you go, you know? It definitely has to be built on personal relationship. If you don't have relationship, if you don't have something at risk, the person, people can walk away. And that's what we're seeing right now in culture with this idea of cancel culture or, you know, cutting people Mm -hmm. off and things like that. They don't have anything in the risk or they, they've definitely changed their position on the relationship. So going in, one of the things that Krista and I had a conversation about early on was how are we going to be in the risk? How are we going to make it past these hard conversations? Because there were hard conversations. There were tears. There was things said that I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I navigate myself past this? And I know she asked the same questions, but it was, we had a, a thing where we said, where you go, I go. Mm. And that was, I think that, I mean, even as a a family, because we live together and, you know, even as, as a bigger unit, that was part of that, like where one person goes, we all go. And that is how we decided early on to maintain our connection and our friendship that, you know, conversations of race and unity were not going to completely kill us and kill this relationship. Wow. That is really powerful. So where you go, I go, what did, what did that look like? I mean, I didn't even give you this question ahead of time. I'm just curious, like, what did that mean for you guys? It meant that no matter where one person was, the other person would be willing to step into that risk with them. And Mm -hmm. no one gets to leave without Mm -hmm. the other person. Like no one just gets to opt out. That's not what we're in this for. Mm -hmm. And so we, like we had a, a larger family commitment to that, but Krista and I also had this deep commitment of like, where you go, I go, we're not gonna opt out on one another. Wow. That is so countercultural right now. Like you just said, I mean, we are living in the age of canceling people and unfollow and mute and defriend and make your network look and sound just like you. And Mm -hmm. I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else because it's so, so hard. 
Yes. <laughs> it is so hard. Like it is the hardest thing to enter into a relationship with people that you don't see eye to eye with and that you, you, you might, you know, maybe you agree on like the end goal, but you disagree on how to get there. Mm-hmm. Those are like, those are just the, some of the toughest conversations that we, we can possibly have as individuals. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One of the things that's happened this week for me is I'm in a conversation, I was in a conversation with someone that I've known for 20 plus years. And that person definitely holds a CRT view, Black Lives Matters view, down with white people. And, you know, how do I navigate a conversation with that person when that person's definitely speaking what I feel are curses over, you know, some of my white friends and things like that. And I feel like it is a a thing where I'm going to stand on truth. I will also stand for the relationship, but I will offer correction. And I had to, you know, also be clear with my friend and say, Hey, you know, you know, I love you because we just talked the other day and I told you that I loved you. And we historically over the course of our relationship have been like brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And don't think that I am going to allow you to do to someone else what I wouldn't allow someone to do to you. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's about that that consistency. And then people can opt in or opt out, but I'm going to stand on the li- on the line of truth. And if yeah. you want to be on the line of truth, you're more than welcome to join me. And if not, I will continue to love you and pray for you. And we can, I don't think you have to agree with me. We, I'm an adult, so we can, you know, disagree and we can disagree respectfully and appropriately, but that is going to be, be the line for me. I'm going to stand on the line of truth. Right. Yeah. That's a really good visual because you're not walking away from people just because they disagree with you, but you're refusing to walk with them into the darkness in a sense like I'm here here's where I am like it's almost like you're showing people like here's where I am see let me show you I'm on this or I'm in this circle I'm on this line please come join me I'm not walking away from you I'm standing here but Mm -hmm. you've got to you've got to join me in order to kind of link arms and be on mission together and like you said it's like if not that's fine like I trust that God is sovereign and he, he can do whatever he needs to do to reveal truth to you and I don't need to war against you, you know, as an individual. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think, a really helpful visual just to kind of free us that, yeah, of course, not everyone's going to agree with you. Of course, you know, you're you're going to be in the minority. Like, let's mm-hmm. just get that out there. Like, I'm in the minority with this view. You're in the minority with this view. Not buying into CRT right now is completely counterculture. It is completely, if you say that in your Facebook feed and I'm, I'm a Christian, I have a lot of Christian friends. I have a lot of friends on Facebook who are Christians and some who aren't, but like, if I were to say anything about like what we're talking about right here on my Facebook feed and I have, I would get destroyed. Like (laughs) I would get, I mean, and I know a lot of people listening are like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why you just don't, you don't say things and, and that's a personal choice, but yeah, this is, this is very, very remnant, you know, this Mm -hmm. is remnant. Like this is not what the world wants to hear right now. And yet we would say that CRT is incompatible with scripture and the design that God has given us for unity. So can you kind of shifting gears, can you talk to us about that? Why is CRT incompatible? And and then after that, I, I would be curious to know what you know, if there was something looking back, like what specifically kind of, if there was one thought or idea that won you over, I guess, to, to seeing things 
in a new light in, in terms of like what our hope was for racial unity? Let's see. My goodness, that's a good question. So first off, what is CRT? So for CRT, um, stands for critical race theory. It is a part of a larger framework called critical theory. Critical theory came about in the late 1930s, if I'm not mistaken, like 1938, 39. And it was part of the Frankfurt School. And it was a way to be able to critique society, to investigate society and see who the oppressors were and who were the oppressed within a, a society. It has a Marxist framework initially. Um, so it was pulled kind of like out of the Marxist ideology and things like that. Later on, it turned into critical legal studies and an investigation within the legal field and legal studies. And then critical race theory was born out of that. And from there, you have things like critical feminist theory, critical feminist theory, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other things. So LGBTQ, Latinx theory, feminist theory, you can get fat studies, ableism, all of these things looking at who the oppressed and the oppressors are within any society community. You also get things like intersectionality, which is, again, looking at how many intersections someone has. So if I am a Black woman, which I am, I have two intersections there. So there's an intersection that would mean that I am more oppressed than a white woman, because while a woman may be an oppressed category, being white would not be. Being Black is an oppressed category and being a woman is an oppressed category. Being a male is not an oppressed category unless you were maybe a Black male, but being a white male is not an oppressed category because they are seen as having more power. Mm-hmm. So it's like a scoring system with oppression points. It is. It it really is. Like the Victim Olympics is someone mm-hmm. um, I, I once <laughs> heard say. Yes, it really is. And so... That's a bit about CRT and what it is and how it has all of these connecting points. But the head, or if you look at, think of it as a train, the engine would be critical theory. And critical right. theory has all these cars that come behind it, but it's all linked. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so hesitant and even um, weary of it coming into evangelical spaces is because yes, while we want to be concerned about oppression and marginalization, you know, and, you know, things like that, the poor, we don't want to adopt critical theory in our churches because it's also connected to feminist theory, LGBTQ theories, Mm -hmm. like all of these other things that the historic church has not been on board with. Right. And so it's like you you can't really have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. Yeah, you don't get to disconnect it um, you because don't. it's just not the nature of the of how it works. Yeah, because I mean, when when you say things like, you know, that we we want to be accepting of all people in regards to critical race theory, that's awesome. And you know, we do want to be accepting of all people, but where does that stop? You know, and not to say that we don't value other image bearers, but does that mean now, because I value all people, that I also must have an openly gay minister in in the pulpit? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we not slide down the slippery slope of critical theory in order to not oppress? Right. And I think the problem because I mean, the reason that's a problem is, is, you know, some people might be like, well, yeah, I get your point. But like, there's a lot of 
quote unquote Christian churches that, you know, are affirming of LGBTQ. And so like, that's nothing new. Okay, fine. You could have that point. But what about if we say, so, you know, how this whole system works is you're defined not by your identity in Christ, but by how you, you would categorize yourself as your primary identity. So let's say, I define myself as uh, someone that's attracted to underage youth. And I am basically a molester, Mm -hmm. but now that's, I I actually think that it's my right to be attracted to whomever whomever I'm attracted to. Mm -hmm. And that's my prerogative as an individual. You don't get to tell me because we don't have an agreed upon framework for moral boundaries, you know, or righteousness. There's no agreed framework here you do you, I do me. And I define myself this way. And, and, and because of that, because I'm a minority in the sense of, or, you know, I'm oppressed, I'm, I'm more oppressed than you because I'm not the mainstream. I'm not the top dog. Who's kind of making the laws and setting up the systems. Now I get more points. And the other thing about this is like, I have a a higher access to truth than you do because I'm oppressed because I'm, Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and that whole idea of truth becomes yes. completely subjective. It's it's right. abstract. <laughs> it's like, you right. know, this it's is like, my truth? truth. Yeah, this right. is my truth. And you can't question my truth. Right. You know, and if we can't question your truth, then it is true. And I have to accept that. And if I don't accept it, then I become an ist. So a racist, mm-hmm. a sexist, a, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the ist is, I, be, I then participate in the isms. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, without a standard universal framework for truth and right and wrong, evil and good, all of the, all of the rest of this is completely subjective. And that is why it completely flies in the face of what scripture tells us, because God has given us a law. He has told us what is good. You know, we don't have to turn to our neighbor and go, you know, what do you think's good? We mm-hmm. don't have to, we don't have to do that. And actually we're told not to do that because God does not see as man sees or judges man judges, but he looks at the heart. And so, and, and he is the arbiter of good. He's the arbiter of justice and he is fully just and fully good and perfectly holy in his being. Yeah. And so it's but, just, but we can't, so we, that's why we can't go there with, with CRT. Yes. Because we have a definition already of what is good, true and beautiful. Yeah. And when culture wants to redefine what is good, true, and beautiful, we are in trouble. We are taken away from scripture, which truly is the definition or has a definition of what is good, true, and beautiful. Are you a female entrepreneur with a small or budding business? Would you describe your online presence as eh, lackluster at best? Well, girl, you're in luck because you're who I work with and making people shine online is what I do. This podcast is my passion, but in my day-to-day work, I am actually a web and graphic designer. I specialize in working with small businesses run by female entrepreneurs. Why? Because I am one of you. So I just get you. I get how you want to show up online as stellar and amazing as you do in person already. You want a system for growing your email list, converting traffic into customers. And most of all, you just want someone you can trust to execute all of that without a million redos or false starts. I know how hard it is to trust someone with your brand that feels kind of like one of your own children. But if you want to chat about your business's website or digital presence, I'm your girl. Email me at Haley at kindledpodcast.com or check out my web design website at hwilliamscreative.com. So where do we see this like playing out right now? 
and the national insanity that's happening across the country. I mean, you know, we've got cities burning down, we've got police being voted to be disbanded and defunded. And I mean, it just, it looks scary. The landscape is a little scary right now, what is on the horizon. But I know that we're seeing outworking of this all over the news, all over the headlines of kind of the foundation of, of what we see critical race theory lies behind it, but it's sometimes can be hard to identify. Mm-hmm. Could you give us some examples of how we're seeing that play out? We, I think we're seeing that play out in the overturning of the oppressors, so to speak. So the overturning of power. Again, critical theory is, is concerned with who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed and overturning the oppressive regimes. And so right now we're looking at who has the power and how do we overturn that power so that power can be more equitable, so that those who are marginalized or oppressed can have power. So defunding the police would be a way mm-hmm. of overthrowing power. I'm not sure if you're familiar with terms like getting rid of like the white male patriarchy. Yes. You know, so white males are seen in society as the ones with the most power. We want to overthrow that. Black Lives Matter being something that would now promote the oppressed category and put them in a place of power. Yeah. And my thoughts on Black Lives Matter is not necessarily related to that comment, but mm-hmm. this is what we're seeing. This is how we're seeing it play out. People, um, representatives of Black Lives Matter making people bow down in the streets to them. Oh, that's you know? a mess. That is some mess. <sighs> Girl. That is scary. I look at that and I'm like, I just see the devil. I just see yeah. the devil. Who in the world? And in the name of Jesus, like they, <sighs> you know, it's like, well, let let me bow down to you and worship. But here's another thing, like, okay, so I, I know people can't see me, but I am black. I'm not making this up. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, if if someone were to walk up to me and be like, you need to bow down to me, as saved as I really believe that I am. I might have a moment. <laughs> I might yeah. have to, excuse me, Jesus, I'll be right back. <laughs> right. Um, you, you know, like this, that isn't the way that we treat other image bearers. One, yeah. one, we worship only God. We bow down before only God. It's not in, 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 in the American culture. Bowing is a form of reverence and worship. It's not like we're in an Asian community or culture where they bow as a, a sign of respect to one another. Like it's different. And so my mind is blown. Like I'm nearly speechless to think (laughs) that someone would walk up to another image bearer and be like, you need to bow down and in a way repent to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, but I guess it makes sense because if we, if we remove God as the whole, the only one who is holy, good, perfect, just true. And we say, no, okay. Reject that. I am actually the center of my universe, my morality, what I say is good. And so then how could we not demand that everyone revolve around that and worship at our feet? Because we have replaced ourselves as God. We have, re- we have taken the throne. We have shoved God off the throne and we are sitting there in pride, in self-righteousness, in blindness and and demanding that others worship us that's literally what's happening and and the funny thing is like believers have kind of always known that like you know we shouldn't put ourselves on the throne of our hearts it's really easy to do you always have to preach to yourself the truth like god is king you're not you're not at the center stop being so selfish and and that's a sinful flesh tendency but what we're seeing in the world is like without 
the transforming power of the gospel without being changed by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. This is what we do both figuratively, spiritually, and literally Mm -hmm. like it's literally happening in the streets and it's just almost too poetic to even believe, you know, it's like, I mean, it's terrible, but it's also like, that is absolutely what happens when we remove God from his throne, that this is what happens here. Here we are. Welcome to, you know, the world we've created. Again, and it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a redefinition of what's good, true, and beautiful. I've set myself up as my own God. I've, 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 I've created a system. And this is a, another thing where I see CRT as antithetical to the gospel is, you know, there's a new definition of what sin is. Sin is no longer our broken relationship with God, our turning away, our fallenness. Sin is now whiteness. Yeah. You know, and the way to rectify your sinful being is to become woke. Yeah. And, you know, like your, your process of sanctification is doing the work. So. Yeah, but it's, it's a new, it's a new religion. It needs a name. I don't know what the name is, but it's a whole new religion, mm-hmm. you know, woke religion, I guess. But it is funny how actually we've replaced every single, every single kind of like phase or step of Christianity has been replaced. Like you just said, sanctification is now doing the work. You know, it, it's just, it's, it, this has been, uh, it's like transplanted on top of, the entire model of Christianity. And I've actually seen some atheists are concerned. Like atheists yes. are like yes. recognizing this as like a threat because mm-hmm. they're like, oh my gosh, like this is actually more dangerous than Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh my gosh, there's a, there's a documentary out by Founders Ministry called By What Standard. Yes. And I need to watch that. I've heard of it. They talk about, you know, if Christians don't check this woke movement and refute it from within our spaces it's going to be what tears apart the church oh yeah i mean i think it already i think it already is and and that's the call that that is on us today i mean it's affecting everyone and in every organization every church i mean and, and even if it isn't even if you're not hearing it from the pulpit i guarantee you your members are you know struggling people mm-hmm. are struggling and and getting getting this from all sides in a sense yes but you also mentioned, you know, you, you said you're black. I'm sure you've experienced, you probably wouldn't even say like that you have not experienced racism in your life. Would you say that you have, like, have you been a victim of racism in your life? Yes. I feel like I have, you know, and it's, it's the things that are, I feel like for some people, just everyday things like followed in a store, questioned about what you're doing in South Africa. It's, it's a lot more, or it was a lot more prevalent. I've been pushed or, you know, having people call me derogatory terms and things like Mm -hmm. that, mostly because they thought I was South African. And when they realize I'm American, you know, and they hear, they hear my accent, then it's a different story. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that was a whole different form of racism all by itself. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I would say, yes, I have. And just because I have experienced something wrong does not mean, or let me put it this way, just because I have experienced an injustice does not mean that I get to treat someone else unjustly. And that is to me, the heart of, of the matter right now is that many people are looking at injustice and saying, or validating their, their unjust actions because of injustice. Right. And you know, if that's the standard, then there is like we know i mean it, anyone who knows history and has read read a history book cannot even 
begin to imagine all the atrocities that have happened in this nation's history and in lots of nations' histories. It's not just the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. it's every nation has racism and ethnic hatred because it's it flows from the heart of man, not yes. from the government, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yes, it's there. And I think that is why it is really hard because we all recognize that and know, like, yes, there has been terrible, heinous crimes against humanity for many years, and and they're still happening today. But I think the, like you said, if we think that the answer is going to be now a role reversal, how is that good news for anybody? You know, how is it good news for the oppressed to now become the oppressor when you were on the flip side? you saw how terrible it was and wanted to fight against it. And now we're just going to switch roles and repeat ourselves ad infinitum. Like, is that yeah. what we're going to, is that the solution? Because to me, yeah, well, while it may seem like we're achieving some sort of, some sort of payback, retribution, vengeance for the wrongs done, it doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't undo the violence of the past. It doesn't bring back lives that have been lost. It doesn't, any of those things. I mean, even George Floyd's brother said, you guys have got to stop this. This isn't going to bring my brother back, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a powerful thing for him to say. I completely agree. I think, you know, understanding the past. And one of the things that I will say that I appreciate about critical race theory is that the social justice warriors or people who uphold critical race theory do want to augment some of like the history Mm -hmm. that's put forth to give a more fuller narrative of, you know, American history, because American history is ugly. Like, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to disagree with that. Right. And in that ugliness, how do we pursue righteousness? How do we love our neighbor? How do we love our enemies? What does that look like for the Christian? Culture is going to do what culture wants to do. But for the Christian, how do we pursue something that is biblical? How do we pursue forgiveness? There, right. there are many conversations that I think need to be had to get us to a better place. But those conversations need to be had first in the church. We can't expect culture to change if the, ch- if the church isn't having these conversations. Right. Yeah. And if the church is offering the wrong solution as well. Yes. I mean, yes. Culture is going to get even further away from the truth, which I think we see happening right now. Yeah. We see the church in a lot of cases being led by culture and I mean, complete reverse there of what you just said should be happening. Yes. But I mean, what I think is happening is that the church or many people within the church feel like they don't have any solutions or answers. For some reason, we've gotten away from the fact or the belief that the gospel really does have answers and that it really is powerful. And in stepping away from that, we've gone into culture to try to find these answers and bringing culture into the church will kill the church. We need to be the light and take our light out into culture. It's almost as if we thought that we were going to be able to eradicate all sin and all brokenness in this world. It's almost like we thought we were Jesus. Like Mm. we were going to be Jesus come back, you know, Mm -hmm. me, you know, me following, if I do what Jesus says to do, then I'll be able to, you know, fill in the blank, create this utopian society, eradicate all injustice, eradicate all death and sin and brokenness. And I mean, the Bible is very clear that that doesn't happen until Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. And not even he knows the day that that's happening. Only the father knows. And so, you know, it's pretty clear if you read scripture that we are not going to experience the absence of sin, the absence of death, the absence of murder and hate 
until he recreates the heavens and the earth. And yet I think that what a lot of Christians are, like you said, they're, they're growing weary of doing good. And the Bible cautions us again against that. Do not grow weary in doing good, but we're growing weary of continuing to stay in the scripture and preach the truth. And we still see all this brokenness and sin and death around us. And we're going, it's not working. It's not working. Okay. Let's try something else. Let's reinvent the wheel. Let's venture outside what God has said, because maybe it's not enough for the current situation. Maybe it's not enough to actually solve the problems that we're dealing with. These issues require extra biblical solutions. You know, that's what I see happening in a lot of churches and just in, in individuals as well, that w- there's this kind of push to, like I said, just reinvent the wheel and find a better solution. And I think what it's showing is that we have a really, really low view of scripture mm-hmm. and a really low view of the power of God. <laughs> I mean, and a really high view of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, I don't know that I feel like people are getting weary and well-doing, I think that there's a pressure from culture that's saying you're not doing enough. It's mm-hmm, kind of yeah. like with the the whole thing of putting up memes. You know, if you don't put up this meme, if you don't post this post and say this, then you aren't a real Christian or you aren't for Black life or you aren't, you know, whatever. And it almost becomes this legalistic thing of yeah. you need to do this in order to be good. Yeah. And I think that people want to be seen as good. And people yeah. want to do what is right, but without fully knowing what's right and being confused and scared and hurt, then they're grabbing on to something that isn't biblical. Yeah. And that's what we do in the absence of true truth and grace being preached and, and being spoken over us. We will always turn to legalism. Because we do want to be good. Like you said, we do want to do good. We want to be right. We want to be found in a right standing. And so in the absence of the the truth that, hey, you are incapable in and of yourself to do anything good. In fact, your best acts are as filthy rags before God. But the good news is that Jesus died for the ungodly when we were still his enemies so that we could be unified with God and each other, you know, that vertical and then the horizontal unity that we can have because of what Jesus did. But it is in the absence of that message of grace and truth Mm -hmm. that we always turn to legalism, whether it's churchy legalism or now this secular legalism of like you described, you've got to post this, you got to post the square, you got to do this, you got to do that. Um, Here's a new standard. And guess what? The bar's always moving and Mm -hmm. you're never going to get it right because It, you know, today I want you to be quiet and tomorrow I want you to speak. And today I want you to sit down and tomorrow I want you to stand up and march. And, and that is, but that's ever moving. That's the thing again, that makes critical race theory antithetical to me, to the gospel, because in the gospel, we have a firm bar. We know where we stand. We know what we need for salvation. We know like Christ to me is so clear in, in what we must do and what he has done. Mm-hmm. but with this, the social justice movement currently, you know, you need to post these things. You need to read these books. You need to speak out when you're supposed to speak out, or you need to be quiet. Um, you need to decenter your whiteness, you know, like all of those things. Or and, you need to use your privilege. You yeah. Know, you, you hear both of them. Yes. You know, and, or protest, or it's not your place to protest, or right. there's, there's so many things and it's constantly up and down, depending on who you're talking to. You need to be woke. And as soon as, you know, you talk to someone, 
one who says, oh my gosh, and they validate you for being woke. You can talk to somebody else 10 minutes later and they say, oh my gosh, look at you just using your privilege. You're not woke at all. There's always this striving and more to do. I say it's like Jesus plus. Yeah. You know, and you know, we understand if we truly hold to a historic Christian framework that Jesus is enough. Yeah. And I think what you end up with when you try and make Jesus plus the answer is you end up with nothing. I mean, you Mm -hmm. don't, if you add anything to the gospel, you don't get the gospel. That's the problem. It's Mm -hmm. not like, oh, it's even better. It's even better than just the gospel. It's like you lose all of the goodness of the truth that he came and he lived the life we couldn't and he died the death we couldn't and he atoned for sin and he made a righteously angry God who had wrath to pour out on sin satisfied because he loved us and because we are now a part of his family and we've been grafted in like None of that can be true if there's a plus after mm-hmm. it. There, it can't. It just it, it the plus invalidates it. And so I just I it's sad to me, and I I struggle to understand how so many Christians are getting swept away so quickly and being swept away by every wind of doctrine. Mm-hmm. And you see that happening, and it and I blows my mind how quickly it has happened in the wake of this tragedy and the the horrific death of George Floyd. Like it's, it's terrible. I mean, we agree. We agree that that was wrong. That was murder, but it's shocking to me how quickly, you know, Christians have kind of abandoned what I would have thought, you know, they would claim, claim to be their truth and their hope in a situation like this. So I know a lot of us have friends that are getting woke and (laughs) all the time, you know, there's a new woke post on my feed every single day. So how do we, I mean, you're, you're a prime example of someone that was able to maintain a relationship, have conversations that led to, you know, you kind of realizing the error of CRT and then finding truth, finding a better way, a better way forward. So, I mean, how do you encourage the women listening who are feeling maybe a little bit weary, frustrated, hopeless about some of their relationships and where those people are going? Like, what would you encourage them to do? I would initially say be patient, be gracious and ask questions because I think that as you ask questions, you'll begin to put pebbles in people's shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, just be gracious because a lot of people are are blind and in deception and believing something that truly is not the historic gospel and they need people to speak truth but the verse now, it is the kindness of God that leads man into repentance. Mm -hmm. It is going to be your kind actions, not your anger, not your condescending remarks or things like that, that will bring people out. Actually, that is just going to push people further into it because it will confirm their bias that people who hold to, you know, a historic Christian narrative or historic Christian framework don't care about the poor, don't care about the marginalized. They don't want to see the truth. So just begin to ask questions and listen to their answers. Some people have really good answers. You know, it it can challenge us even, you know, well, okay, well, they brought that up. How do we handle that? What does the, the scripture say? And then find out what the scripture says, if you don't know, and take that back to them. You know, well, in light of what you're saying, how do you think about this scripture? Ask questions. Yeah. And I would also say, don't enter in even, you know, personally or as we are on social media and things like that, don't allow the enemy to begin to to speak shame over you. 
you know, get into a conversation with the Lord of what should I be doing? How do I need to proceed forward? What would you have me say, if anything? Yeah. But don't allow culture or the enemy to speak shame over you or condemnation for not doing something that is legalism. And there's freedom in Christ. And, you know, it's like he has set us free for the purpose of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so if that is the case, then what would he have us do? What would he have us do to to be a light within our small group of, of friends? What would he have us do to be a light within our community? But real change will only come one person at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would be my suggestions right off the bat, Mm -hmm. but, you know, making sure that we don't enter into, to shame, because I think that's part of what culture wants to, to put on people who go against the narrative, especially white people who go against the narrative. You know, me being black, I go, you know, my, my voice is definitely against the narrative of the majority of black people or at Mm -hmm. least that's how it feels right now. And so the names I get, you know, I'm called names or, you know, people unfriend me or cut me off or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And yet I can still stand for truth. I, I get some of that, like being kicked out of the tribe, but I think there's an even heightened amount of that being put on white people They'll you know, like white women being called Karen and, you know, all these things. And so don't enter into, to the shame, protect your heart. Yeah, that's, that is an encouraging word for all of us. And I'm sure a lot of us have been in that exact spot. Thought we were saying the right thing. You know, this, this very thing happened to me on Facebook. I I thought I was doing the right thing by, you know, in the wake of all this happening, sharing a black voice and elevating, you know, elevating a melanated voice, the hashtag says. And in fact, it wasn't the right melanated voice. It wasn't the right message it was Mm. you know Virgil Walker I shared his post and and I guess I like him a lot (laughs) me too he's awesome but no but he nobody wanted to hear that nobody wanted to hear what he has to say they don't want to hear that you know he said actually America is the best place to be a black man and it is not open season on black men that that's ridiculous Mm -hmm. nobody wanted to hear that they were offended I got I got ripped to shreds I mean tons of comments and these are you know from my real life friends yes people that I actually know in real life not strangers on the internet Mm -hmm. which I can handle that Mm -hmm. Um, but it hurts a lot when it is the people that you really or like oh I okay well one I thought I was doing the right thing I thought I was trying to kind of be supportive and show my you know show that I'm I stand with you I'm against this I'm against hate I don't condone this and yet if the voice doesn't fit the narrative you're not wanted. Yes. And in fact, you are, you are silenced. You are hushed. You are shunned. Um, Kicked out of the tribe. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's they call you names. Yeah. It's, it's like the mob comes mm-hmm. for you. Yes. And it's, uh, it's a pretty jarring thing to go through. I mean, it happened to me a couple of weeks ago and it was like, it consumed my mind and heart for about 48 hours. And I was I mean, I struggled. I was just like, God, like I, I don't, you know, working through it in my own heart, like, cause of course I'm not perfect. I know there's, there's place in my heart throughout that whole situation where I was sinful or I got angry and I shouldn't have. And, you know, and I, and there was places of unrighteous anger, but a lot of it was just like you said, the condemnation of the world mm-hmm. and the world telling me and culture telling me, and, you know, even some of these voices were Christians that I know telling me like, this is veiled racism. You are being hateful. Please stop this. Please just stop. Hmm. Please remove this post or say that you 
that you lament his death or, you know, giving me new, like new legalism, new rules Mm -hmm. to follow, new, Mm -hmm. new hoops to jump through. And Mm -hmm. it was really difficult. And I ended up taking the post down because I was, I was just like, this is not good for my spiritual, spiritual health right now to be battling this in this way. And, you know, there was an element where for me, I was like, okay, like I, I, I was a little bit in the wrong for probably sharing that, like within a couple days after his death, I could see how maybe that would feel insensitive because it, like it was Virgil's voice, not mine. So people might feel like, well, you don't have the right to sh- to share his voice. You, you know, he has the right to share his voice, but you don't. But again, like, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that that was the rules. I'm sorry, you know. But here's just, the thing really too, rough. like where in scripture does, are, where in scripture are we told that you can't share something because of the color of your skin? I, you know not, what I mean? Like, it's really, it, it, yeah. it, that's, that's a made up rule in culture. Where are you invalidated because of the color of your skin, according to scripture? That's invalidated. Like, like that, I mean, that, that's something that, you know, is put on us by culture. In scripture, what I see is a level playing field. Like we're all brothers and sisters and it doesn't matter the color of your skin. Right. Neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Right. And so now, I mean, there are some things that, that the Lord will have you do like decenter your pride or, you know, there's a time to speak and a time not to speak, but that though, those aren't put forward as a, this time is not for you to speak because of the color of your skin. Yeah. But it's hard not to succumb to that when Christians that, you know, are telling you like, these are the rules follow. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I agree with you 100%. I, I think I, I got bullied out of, the the tribe in a sense and i think there's you know there's some wisdom there and discernment in knowing like when to be silent and when to speak certainly like it's not always time to post on facebook right yeah. like it's not always time to have a big opinion and like shove it in everybody's faces like yeah i think you know i think there can we can have discernment but the foundation of where that was coming from matters like the the motive of where that's coming from is yeah. what what god is looking at and he knows your heart. And so it's like, well, God knows against him and him only do I sin. I do not sin against the grand public of opinion, the court of opinion, you know, where, you know, now my Facebook friend audience is going to judge whether or not I'm in or out or racist or not racist. Like, no, God knows my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to live as a slave to that. Because like you said, he died that we would be free for freedom. He said is free, not for enslavement. So it's it's hard, but that is something that we really need to cling to and remember in these days of uh, insanity. I don't know how else to describe it. It is crazy. It is all the cray. Man, I really appreciate your voice in this. And like I said, just the timeliness of God bringing your voice to the forefront to share truth from a perspective of someone coming from CRT who believed it, who bought into it for a while, but then found that it really didn't offer the hopes and the promises that God does give us in his word. And I know that your story, your testimony is going to be so impactful and powerful for so many. I know they're going to be sharing it with their friends. So where can people connect with you further online? Um, On Facebook, it's the Center for Biblical Unity. And our website is thecenterforbiblicalunity.com. They have questions. They want to email. It's centerforbiblicalunity at gmail.com. And yeah, perfect. That's 
that's all the things, all the places. Yeah. You go live a ton on there or you post video content and all the time and you have so many great resources. So people should definitely go check that out. Oh, I also um, co-host a podcast. I think I mentioned it earlier called all the things or all the things show. And we also have a Facebook page on there, all the things show. And so, yeah, you can find us, um, Krista Bontrager and I lead that podcast. Yes. And you guys are amazing. You're a dynamic duo. So I'll link that in the show notes. Try. And people, can find, people can find all the links and, awesome. and go Thanks. start following you guys. So thank you again so much, Monique, for joining me today. Thank you. So glad to have found you and glad to just have another sister speaking truth. It's, you know, we need each other. We need to be reminded we're not the only one. Yes, yes, yes. We are family. Yes. And that's, I think that's the crux of the matter. It's like, how are we treating family? Right. Oh man. Amen. It's good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have a good day. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really pray that that episode helps you to understand kind of the landscape of what's happening in this country in this conversation. Come find me on Instagram. I'm going to go silent again here for a few weeks for the rest of June and possibly July, but I will let you know what the plan is for relaunching the podcast after this little short summer break on Instagram. So come find me over there at HaleyWilliams.Kindled. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. The struggle is real. When you have one eyebrow from Walmart and the other one from Neiman's, it's like... (laughs) I totally understand. That's why I got microblading done about a month ago. (gasps) Did you? Did it hurt? I did. Not at all. I'm not even kidding. It did not hurt. Um, They they numb you up, but the the thing that actually hurt the most was the tweezing because they (gasps) tweezed after they did the microblading so like imagine getting a tattoo and then having that area tweeze like that hurt yeah see i have a tattoo and i almost fainted i was like stop it oh this hurt this yeah i have a tattoo also this was nothing like getting a tattoo really no not at all because you're totally numb i mean it just feels like a little it feels like someone's dragging a needle across your skin but it, it doesn't really hurt it's almost like you know you would feel it but it wouldn't be like it's pushing into your skin and you know it doesn't feel like that at least the tool that they used on me, it was like a little pen with 18 tiny little needles, like microscopic, mm-hmm. and they just drew brush strokes on. So it wasn't like a hammering needle. How sense. often do you have to get it redone? So I got it done about a month ago, and then you get it touched up um, four to six weeks after the initial time mm-hmm. that you go because they once it heals, then they can see like where the you know holes are, where they need to fix it and kind of like thicken it up a little. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so I had that done. And now I, they'll send me a reminder at, they said like, um, 18 months, but it can last from 18 months to three years. Oh, wow. How much did it cost? If I can ask. I think it was five twenty-five. Really? Yeah. So I just, I, oh. and I'm a blonde. And so like my eyebrows were very, um, light and didn't really, I had to do them every day. And I just, you know, with summer coming up and sweating and pool, I was just like, you know, that's like, such an important part for me of like feeling put together, feeling like ready for the day. And I just finally decided to pull the trigger. So I love it. I will never not do it again. I mean, I'm going to make sure I just keep it up for, you know, eternity. (laughs) So I love it. Okay. Mm, That gives me something to think about. I only know one other person who's done it and she absolutely loves it. But I am just like, I, 
I always like liken things to people who have had kids. And I'm like, you know, I haven't had kids. I am probably not on that level of pain yet. Like, oh. I, I could barely deal with a tattoo. So I just feel uh, like, you know, yeah. I think maybe I need to like I strengthen don't myself. Well, I mean, you could always ask about the procedures, but like, I can't imagine that they wouldn't numb you up. They leave it on for like 30 minutes. Um, oh. It's like a lidocaine type thing with like plastic over it. And they just make you sit there and wait. So really okay. yeah i mean you don't get numbed up it. for a tattoo though you know unless it's like no a big area so that's i think it would hurt if you didn't have that but it, it didn't hurt okay yeah no it was All amazing right. and i would just ask him to tweeze beforehand because she did that the second time and that was way better okay but hmm. even still like you know the tweezing you could do the tweezing yourself you could just be like no thanks i'm you know i don't need you to do that so okay yeah well, i have found this to be highly informative already <laughs> Yeah, I think we could just be done. That's all. That's See, all there it is. There. Yep. <laughs>